Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience for the Australian Industry Group, coming to you today from the Yungamba language region. And this is Supply Circles, the podcast that asks the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we are implementing the challenges of the three Ds. You know them, digitalization to keep up with your peers and your industries, decarbonization to meet your legal requirements and targets by 2050 and in some states 2045, and ongoing disruptions, which come in many shapes, not only pandemics, but also industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistic interruptions and challenges, global inflations, and so much more. Each fortnight, I delve into different sections of the end-to-end supply chain. I chat with fascinating and interesting people, and we try to have some fun along the way. As you know, this podcast is brought to you by the Australian Industry Group, AI Group, Australia's premier employer organisation assisting businesses to adapt to the changes in business and the economy, and is currently at the forefront of addressing the multiple aspects of the 3Ds that I just mentioned, and of the changing economy, is at the forefront of IR and work place challenges of today and so much more. What you possibly don't know is that Australia Industry Group celebrates 150 years of continuous operation this year. 150 years, that's an amazing story in Australia. It started in 1873, which is staggering when you consider it. The English had been in Australia for only 85 years. It was 10 years before the setting of that TB miniseries of wagon trains across America, 1883. 10 years before wagon trains. It's less than 20 years since machines arrived in Australia. It's before motor cars. It's 12 years before Daimler first painted it his horse's carriage. 1873 is 10 years uh, before Thomas Edison painted, uh, painted in the electric light bulb. Henry Ford was only 10 years old. 1873 Australia was completely different from today. It had candlelight, horse and carriages, And indeed, it was 27 years before Federation and the formalisation of Australia as a nation. At that time, big changes were coming. In 1873, uh, we saw the Overland Telegraph connect Australia to England and the world for the first time via an incredible invention called the Undersea and and Overland Cable. And as I said, 1873 was also the year the forerunner of the Australian Industry Group was created. It's a great story. It's really exciting. But we don't need to just look back, we also have to look forward. So it's been an exciting 150 years, but what's next? And how does Australian Industry Group help us answer the question of how do we build sustainable and resilient supply chains? The answer, of course, is to ask my guest today. And my guest is the CEO of AI Group, Innes Willocks. Hello, Innes. Hey, James, how are you? It's a long time ago, 1873, isn't it? Yeah, before my time. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible achievement when you think of all the changes that have happened in business and community over that time. Uh, we've gone from the first industrial revolution to the fourth. Uh, and AI Group has been there for the whole time. You must be really proud to be the CEO, you know, in this year of, of celebration. Oh, absolutely. It's a huge achievement for an organisation, which has gone through a lot of iterations over the years, but a huge achievement for an organisation to have a continuous history like that, dating back to two uh, iron foundry owners getting together uh, in Sydney in 1873 Mm -hmm. to make sure that 
their interests as employers were looked after at a time of, at that time, huge disruption and change as well. Um, the antecedents of AI Group go back to the, you know, the eight-hour working day campaign at the time uh, that was being run. And I don't think the concern from the history was so much about the eight-hour day at the time. It was around the industrial disruption at the time uh, that was that was going on around it. Um, so in many ways, there are some parallels between now and then about this idea of disruption. And perhaps we've gone through constant disruption ever since then. It just seems like the disruption, one of the three Ds you talked about, uh, has sped up in recent years. So celebrating 150 years is a wonderful achievement. It does make you think what the next 150 are going to look like as well. But I think we're really happy to mark the spot this year. It's a staggering achievement. And I wasn't aware of, of any organisation being around for that long. I just think it's fantastic. But everything changes, everything stays the same. Disruptions and and challenges in running, running businesses remain. Uh, and I think we should be very proud of the fact that we've always been able to uh, add some value to members and, and help them, you know, change as the business changes around them. You've been with AI Group. Well, not that we're competitive or anything, James, but the oldest union in Australia is the Australian Workers' Union, which dates itself to 1886. So I like to say to my friends at the AWU, and they are genuinely friends. I have a lot of good friends who work there that, you know, we've been around longer and and representing uh, interests in Australia for longer than they have, which is quite enormous when you think about it, um, uh, to go back that far. Um, And a lot has happened in that time. We've had federation, you mentioned it, depressions, um, booms and busts, wars, um, but all through that time, the interests of employers and industry have been represented and we've been at at sitting sitting at the tables that we need to be at and having a voice on behalf of, of business to make Australia, through all its iterations and through all the technological advancements, as productive and as outward-looking as we possibly can be and to be as prosperous as we can be. And that's what we're about, James, is about a prosperous industry and a thriving industry makes Australia a better place economically and socially a better place. Uh, and that's what we're seeking to achieve here in a pragmatic, cooperative way. For the people who don't know, perhaps just you know, explain AI Group with a broad brush. It's a, a national organisation. So AI Group has changed over the years. Its history goes back to those two iron foundries in Sydney and it's had, traditionally had a very strong manufacturing base uh, that's still it's still at our core is manufacturing but in recent times particularly as the economy has evolved and developed so has the Australian industry group in terms of who we represent uh, so our we're a membership organization where you know companies join us uh, so that we can represent them at a, both a federal and at a state level. So we're in all states across the country. We have members and we have representational rights within the Fair Work Commission to go to the commission to represent businesses uh, within the commission. But as our economies evolve, because of the skills we have around education skills and training, around energy policy, around industrial relations policy, around occupational health and safety, Around a whole range of areas um, where we're supporting business 
Um, businesses from other sectors of the economy have joined and have benefited from membership with us. So they're in areas now like retail, like the social and community sector, healthcare, um, defence, um, construction, transport, and logistics, um, energy utilities, uh, renewable energy companies now are all part of the AI group network and we hope that we and we we hope that we're benefiting them and demonstrating support for them and leadership for them in some of the big policy debates on one level at a federal and state level, but also on the more practical things around how to make their businesses better and more successful on another. So we do a lot of business support services. We do a lot of HR support services as well. We do a lot of audits for companies around uh, different aspects of their workplaces. So we have pretty deep knowledge and we're there to support. We're not there to tell businesses how to run their business. We're there to support them and to get the best outcomes we possibly can for them. What do you do as CEO? Well, I pull it together. We've got uh, about 250 staff uh, nationally. So we have to, you know, we run a business so we have a significant turnover in that business. So we're a, a pretty reasonable sort of medium-sized business ourselves. So we're running the business. I'm running the business. That's one hand. The second point is, you know, I'm our lead advocate um, in terms of representation, particularly in the political sphere. I spent a lot of time with the team advocating on behalf of members and on behalf of industry, sectors of industry, particularly uh, in Canberra, in the federal sphere. So we do a lot of work uh, around trying to get the best policy outcomes and trying to stop bad things happening as well. In a policy sense, I coordinate all of the policy work that the team does. It all comes up, funnels through to me at a state and, and federal level. Um, we also uh, are a co-trustee of Australian Super, Australia's biggest superannuation or pension fund. So I sit on the board of Australian Super with four other Australian industry group representatives. So and that's now a $300 billion fund, likely to be a half a trillion dollar fund within a decade or so. That's three, um, three million members. So that's a huge responsibility as well. Um, so that, there's sort of things that are particularly tied to, to the job that I have. So it's a pretty busy job leading the team uh, and trying to get the best outcome for business. It's being an advocate First and foremost, it's being a representative for business in all sorts of forums. So I get a lot of joy from that because we see good things happening for business. You're also often on TV and on radio. Uh, and I say to people, you know, I work for the Australian Industry Group, they say, we haven't heard of them. And I say, yes, you have. There's a guy called Ennis Willis. You'll see him on the Today Show or <laughs> the other breakfast shows shortly or on the ABC. And a couple of days later, they come back and say, I heard that guy. There, it turns up. And I said, yes, he's a, he's a very good advocate for the uh, the employers uh, and the, our members. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's got a high profile. Um, you have to have to have impact uh, in the um, sort of political bureaucratic policy space. Um, you have to be prepared to put forward arguments and contest ideas. Um, and that just goes with the job. Uh, you have to be prepared to put forward a case. Now, a lot of people think that's all I do is just I'm on TV or radio all the time, but there's obviously a lot more to it than that and there's a lot more of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. But 
you're not a media tart like some of our friends in in uh, in Canberra. Not the media tart, but some of those politician friends. Yeah, well, I actually knock back a lot of media as well because you know, you've got to be very careful about what your messaging is and how you message. Uh, and and what you're trying to get across. Uh, and sometimes it's just not the right time to go public and talk about things and some things are just not, it's just not suitable for you to talk about. But also my favourite story I use, James, is I was walking across Collins Street in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago and this lady walked towards me um, and she sort of stopped me halfway across the crossing and she grabbed me by the wrist and she said, I see you on television all the time, but you're much more handsome in real life. That made me feel pretty good. Um, <laughs> that would make anyone uh, feel good, yeah. yeah. Although um, you, apparently but, you don't look good on TV. That's not very good. I don't look good on TV. Well, TV is terrible for you. But um, but it was good because, I mean, she'd recognised that I got it from a cab driver the other day. Oh, I see you on TV all the time. I hear you on radio. And, you know, what you say makes a lot of sense, you know, in, t- in terms of the broader economics. And that's always rewarding. Sometimes you get, you know, you get a hard time, um, but that just comes with the turf. I think it, anyway, that's great. Uh, by the way, I look great on webinars, which is, I mean, podcasts, which is why I do them. Um, <laughs> well, we both got heads for radio. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. right. Um, you mentioned that it's a one of the one of the things you do is this idea of communication, which is a contest of ideas, and that's sometimes lost. Sometimes it seems to come across as. Um, as a battle, uh, where in initial fact, where it's really this idea of we see this is the best way forward, others see it a different way, let us just, you know, contest that. Is that a fair assumption of the lobbying aspect of AI group? Yeah, you've got to always remember who you're representing, the the interests that you are trying to advocate for and the outcome you're trying to get. And one of the best rules in this is that you are never really going to get 100% of what you want. You're never going to achieve all your objectives. So a lot of times it's to stop getting bad things done and which never sees off, sees the light of day or comes to the surface. Um, so a lot of the work is around that. The other point is too is when you put forward an idea, you have to have evidence behind it. You can't just operate on emotion and you can't just put it there and say, oh, what I say is true, therefore accept it. You know, why don't people just accept what I say? Because there are people do have different paths uh, that they want to take. They have different visions for what they want from for the country as a whole. Um, they, want, they have different outcomes. There's immediate needs and longer-term needs that need to be balanced as well. So there is always a contest of ideas. And I think as long as it's done you know, respectfully, of course, as part of that, you're going to have a bit of a crack every now and then. But as long as it's done respectfully, um, you usually do get the best possible outcomes or something close to it, or you stop. I keep always coming back to this, you stop bad stuff happening. Um, and it is a contest of ideas because as you, we've started out, this whole idea of this podcast is that we're in a time of enormous change uh, and disruption. Some might say upheaval. We're going into a period now of undoubted economic downturn um, because of a range of factors that are that are weighing down on us. So that's going to increase pressure. So what you're looking at is two things. How do we manage this downturn in the best interests of all from an employer perspective and an employee perspective and an overall economic outcome? And then what sort of shape do we want to be in when we 
um, when we come out of it. Um, and I can trace this back to pre-COVID days, James, where our economy was sort of ticking along pre-COVID. It wasn't in fantastic shape. Um, so we went into that downturn and we got through that. And this upheaval we're going through at the moment is just really the next phase of sort of the, the post-COVID world that we're in. That uh, we talk about decarbonisation, we've got digitalisation um, and disruption all playing big parts at the moment. So it's a time of great uncertainty. And that's why you've got to be able to put forward your arguments around what sort of world do we want to have as we as we emerge from this current period or we cope with continued uncertainty. This is a good point. I don't want to age you, but you've, I've been CEO for about 13 years now, I think. 13, 11. 13, sorry? Don't age me that much. 11. Don't age 11. Actually, 11. I can't remember. That's crazy. But 11 <laughs> is still a fair fun, a fair chunk of uh, 150. You know, it's a, it's a reasonable yeah. amount of time that you've been in charge. How has it changed yeah. over that decade? Uh, and what have you learnt? Well, that's a really interesting question. So I took the reins in 2012 um, and that was at a time, if you cast your mind back then, um, that we would Australia was just suffering its version of the global financial crisis. Um, so we went through a bit of a bump, not as bumpy as the US or, or Europe, nothing quite like that. But the world was a different place. Technology was in a different place. Uh, you know, the talk, you know, industry 4.0 and everything goes with that hadn't heard of that. The internet was, you know, was around, but it was still pretty nascent. Um, geopolitics was in a different place at the time. Uh, you know, we didn't have the, the tensions that we do now, for instance, in the Australia-China relationship. You know, China was still very much seen as a, an El Dorado for many at the time. Um, that's fundamentally changed. Um, we had gone through... Climate change was part of the greeny nuttage nuttage. Climate change was still, to be blunt, was still heavily contested at that time. I mean, we went through the 2013 election, which was a big part of that was around climate change and energy policy. The development of renewables was very, very nascent at that time. Um, uh, so, you know, that was a whole different uh, conversation. Um, the nature of work had changed. You know, where we're at now is people are working differently. We're having conversations around work from home. How long does that last and what form does that last? You know, I remember at the time, you know, uh, Telstra, I think it was, was, you know, saying all jobs were flex was what they were saying. So it had to be flexibility. And that was controversial at the time. Um, so the whole way of work, how we work. I remember um, at the time that Telstra was saying, we're not a telephone carrier, we're a, we're a information data carrier or something. And I was saying to Telstra, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> well, that's right. Just give me a phone. Voice, was still a voice company. Then now, now it's a completely a data company. I mean, we didn't have NBN, so mm -hmm. we weren't connected and versions of that technology. We didn't have that then. So I guess um, the real question is, how have you kept ahead of that? I mean, you, you came in with a set of skills and a view, but it's clearly a lot yeah. different now. How does the CEO of uh, of this sort of Hydra 
stay ahead of the thinking or stay up to date with the thinking? Well, if you ask my wife, she will say, (laughs) I'm constantly (laughs) reading and on the phone uh, reading. uh, It's more than talking, talking about data more than voice. To try to keep up with what's going on both on a day-to-day basis but also in terms of a, a trend basis. So what you've got to try to do is more successfully than not, try to pick the trends. Um, what are the big shakers, shapers and movers of, of our economy and our society in particular? Uh, and you just, I think you've just got to be able to constantly absorb information uh, and retain the essential parts of information as as you work through, and you've just got to be prepared to adapt. Um, if you can't, adapt, if you're rigid in your thinking, uh, you're not going to get anywhere. So you've got to be prepared to adapt around what's shaping you and what's shaping those around you. So uh, I just think it's just being constantly not um uh not in a in a phase of being anxious but it's just being really just trying to do your best to keep up and i i you know things move so fast i'm constantly playing catch up um and that's the beauty of a pitfall of the job that i do i can get asked about any any issue on any day and at any moment and You've just got to have, you've got to be across it enough to know what the big impacts are. So this morning already, I've had conversations around energy. I've had conversations around um, issues at at state level, around work cover and workers' compensation. I've had conversations around tax reform. I've had conversations uh, around um, the impact of um, um, the voice on business all sorts of things, you know, so you've just got to be prepared to have those conversations. I've got conversations this afternoon on renewable energy. I've got conversations coming up this afternoon around um, legal issues around class actions and the like impacting workplaces. Uh, I've got a conversation this afternoon around aspects of industrial relations measures that the government is having. So you just got to stay on top of things. You've also got to be prepared to ask a lot of questions and acknowledge when you don't know the answer. All those issues are the issues that every business faces, so you've got to be across Correct. all of them. I imagine you ask a lot of questions of your um, your peers around the world. I do. We're well networked internationally. So I chair the what's called the Global Business Coalition, uh, which is the organisation so which... hell of a title. It is president of the Global Business College. I have a friend I know who's um, the president of uh, a ship called the World, so he's called the president of the world. So I'm not quite, <laughs> that, I'm not quite at that level. Um, but the Global Business Coalition is the business groups from all the G20 economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I'm off to India in uh, August for the B20 meeting, which is the Business 20 meeting head of the G20 meeting, so okay. it sets up the agenda for the for the political leaders at the G20. So um, part of that, we're part of a couple of other international business groupings as well. So we're getting a lot of information all the time around what is happening, 
um, globally, what the pressures are on different economies. I've got to say, James, the stories are often very, very similar, um, sometimes with nuances around the edges. So Australia is no different to anywhere else, really, around the pressures we're facing. Uh, we have the advantages of geography. We have the advantages of um, um, which can work both ways, geography, but it does provide us some, some advantages. We have the advantages of being resource rich uh, and we have the advantages of being relatively well skilled uh, in some areas. But all of the issues we're talking about now, labour shortages, skill shortages, energy problems, impact of climate, impact of digital disruption, dealing with technological change, impacts of broken or, or you know, repairing supply chains, they're all the global issues that, uh, that people around the world are having and Australia is facing those as well. Along with cybersecurity being a critical issue and um, um, energy prices or energy security, I guess. Absolutely. So everyone is feeling these in different ways. So you could, if you had to stack them from one to 10, there might be some, some differences. But businesses around the world are confronting these issues and are having to make hard decisions. Yeah, and I didn't mention impact of inflation, which is as a result of a lot of these pressures. So businesses are having to make some hard decisions around where they put resources. That's capital and labour mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. And that's where things get very competitive. And that's why you hear organisations like ours and me talking a lot around the need for Australia to find ways to enhance our productivity uh, and to make ourselves a better source for um, capital, uh, for investment, for people mm -hmm. and for innovation. Um, and, you know, that, that's really where we have to look if we want to be successful uh, in the years ahead when it comes to really playing a part in the world but also growing as an economy and becoming uh, more important uh, to the rest of the world and being recognised for being a successful economy. One of the things that became strongly obvious during COVID was that we live on an island thousands of kilometres away from our markets and our suppliers. And uh, I have on this podcast described being an island as like a castle uh, surrounded by a bloody big moat. There's real advantages to that. You're, you're able to withstand um, pressures that are happening outside the castle, but you're also subject to being on the castle. You can't get off. You can't just survive. You have to go out and trade at some stage. So uh, like you said, there's pluses and there's minuses to being where we are and who we are. Uh, I think it's good that we have organisations that can, can see these issues clearly and try and help uh, business overcome them. We'll go and take a short break and come back shortly. Before we take the break, uh, I've always wondered, you're, as I said, you're, you're sort of well-known uh, as the CEO of uh, AI Group. My name is as obvious Gaelic as you can possibly come. My name's uh, James Alexander Scotland. Uh, it's not about Gaelic, it's Scottish. It's Anglo-Saxon. But I gather yours is, is also some sort of Scottish or, or Gaelic. Where does Innes Willocks come from? Do you know the origin? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm as Scotty as you can get. Um... I was actually born in Scotland and my parents moved to Australia when I was one, so there's no accent there. But um, Innes is a Gaelic name. Um, Sounds Gaelic, yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's a version of James uh, in Gaelic. Um, and 
um, Alexander is my middle name, so we share that too. Uh, <laughs> a very Scottish. A, a name well known up in the northeast of Scotland, where I was from, from uh, Aberdeen. So Willox is a uh, is a pretty you know not Scottish, and it goes into Norway mm-hmm. um, um, name. So. Yeah, and my mother named me after a racing car driver, Formula One driver at the time, who she quite fancied, a guy called Innes Island. So he was uh, he drove for Lotus back in the back in the day. So nice. uh, I got nice. named after him. I, I come across the occasional other Innes, um, not many, and uh, I was in a meeting once with another Innes, and we both got well. Innes got asked for his opinion, and we both spoke <laughs> over the top of each other. And then said that it never happened to us before. <laughs> so it doesn't happen all that often. Do you drive like your namesake? Uh, yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah, I do like. Yeah, yeah. My actual yeah. name is James Alexander Hamilton, Scotland. And my mother named me that so that when I got knighted, it would sound good. Uh, up until the time she died every year. I kept your saying, day will come, James. I'm underachieving, Mum. I'm so sorry. I'm underachieving. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a sec. I'm uh, talking with Innes Willocks from Australian Industry Group. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. It is the, uh, the the philosopher Socrates said, I'm just quote a philosopher just to sound intelligent, the secret to change is to focus all of your energy not on fighting the old but on building the new. Sort of a nice quote about you can't hang in the past, you've got to move forward. Is this sort of the way that AI Group has always operated in your knowledge? They've always helped businesses to keep changing? Well, going back to that history where we started, there's obviously been enormous change over the years, clearly since that time, but over the years. And so we live in a time of constant change. Um, Things don't stand still. Um, So we are trying always to help our members and industry more broadly adapt to changing circumstances, but not just adapt, but also try to help them in a way to shape their own futures um, as best they can uh, as the situation changes. So to take advantage of change um, is a big opportunity for business. Um, you know, it, it, I, uh, we were talking, I started in 2012 doing this job and the world was a whole different place. There were still fax machines rolling around and things like that. Um at one level. So the world is changing, so business is changing, but how do they adapt to that change? How do they take advantage? Where do they avoid the pitfalls, you know, swim past the sharks? How do they seize opportunity? And how do they um, not do things sometimes as well? Um, These are the things that we try to help business with. So we're always trying to look forward, but we also do have an eye to the past to recognise where things were at. If you don't learn from history, you're not going to learn anything at all. Mm. And we're very big on understanding our history. 
One of the things that every business is struggling with, and I hear, I'm sure you get this every every day, is school shortages. Uh, and of course, that's not just a simple issue. One of the concerns about school shortages is jobs of the future, where AI Group also spends a fair bit of its time. It's becoming confusing with the emergence of AI and robotics and the merging of machines and humans in the workplace. Uh, it's a big issue, particularly for supply chain managers, because you know we work in that area of massive efficiency, building efficiencies into everything we do. And jobs and skills is, of course, a major part of that first D, the digitalization. I, I read a report where Goldman Sachs said that they believe three out of five current jobs did not exist in 1940, which suggests that job change has come about because of technology and they're going to just keep changing. How do, how do businesses try to manage these skill shortages and, and understand the jobs of the future? Where, where is AI Group sitting in that sort of advice? Well, you're right, and that Goldman Sachs stat is a fascinating one. If you think back to the, the original Dow index in America, um, none of the companies that were on that um, you know, over 100 years ago are in existence anymore. Um, te technology has changed very, very rapidly um, and continues to change. The issue for business is that they are both um, victims and beneficiaries of change. You know, I don't want to sound Schumpeterian here, but there is constant sort of creative disruption that's occurring. And if you don't keep up, you're going to get left behind. Uh, and this could be on any issue. So you talked about cyber right? So, uh, earlier on, and it is one of the huge issues. But what we are seeing more and more is that businesses are being it is being demanded of them that they have top-notch cyber protections and cyber awareness and cyber skills within their businesses. If they're to get government contracts, if they're to get contracts from bigger suppliers, uh, if they're going to be involved in supply chains, clearly, because there is a risk. The biggest, you know, the weakest link in the chain is going to break the chain every time. So. Businesses can't avoid now, a no matter their size, a conversation around cyber, cyber protection, cyber insurance, um, all of those sort of issues. It's the same right across the board. Climate, energy, you know, what's your net zero ambition? What are you doing to reduce emissions? Um, what are you doing around the use of new energy technologies, you know? All of these questions are being asked of business all the time. And this is by customers, it's by investors, it's by staff, it's by suppliers, um, by government. Um, so business, no matter its size, in it, it some way is going to have to, has to play a role in this. So as things develop and change, businesses are going to need the workforces. Now, we talk about the workforces of the future, but they're actually the workforces of now. So how do we train? The first question is, how do we train what we've already got to adapt? So there's, all, there's obviously resistance at some levels around retraining and reskilling, but it's actually interesting. There's a lot of new data emerging around people, depending on their age group. As you get, as you get to closer to the end of your working life, the more resistance you, resistant you are to you know, relearning or learning new skills. But for those in that middle belt, the millennials, 
and the Gen Zs and Gen Ys, they're particularly interested in upskilling. So how do we upskill and and what, what are we upskilling into? Now, your point is right, three out of five jobs in 1940 might not exist anymore, but that hasn't just happened overnight. It's been a, it's been a transition. So how do we keep up? Second point, James, is how do we get our young people of the future, you know, the kids now who are in school, uni and school and primary school, including in them, ready for this new world, you know, you know, and that's why we put at AI Group a lot of attention on education, skills and training. That can be anything through from um, apprenticeships in what you might call the tra- traditional trades, they've all fundamentally changed apprenticeships in new areas like defence that Australia is obviously going to spend a lot of money on to develop and and gain capability. Uh, you know, how do we get that workforce ready for the future? How do we get existing com- uh, workforces within organisations upskilled um, around the digital transformation that we're all going through? So uh, 80% of jobs now are digital, have some sort of digital component to them. We're talking digitally, you know, so we're digitally proficient. Hmm. doesn't mean we're all computer programmers or geeks, but we've developed these skills. But how do um, businesses upskill and adapt for the change? The other problem is that skill shortages are not just an Australian phenomenon. They are an international phenomenon. So there is attracting those skills to Australia is a significant challenge. So you've got to look at things like your migration programs, uh, and your visa um, programs as well to make it as easy and attractive for people to get to Australia as possible to contribute to the Australian economy. So this is sort of a, a multi-leg stool in many ways. Um, but nobody can predict the future. If you'd said in 1940, three out of five jobs won't exist, there'd have been riots at the time. You know, that's sort of 80 years on. Um but and if you go eighty years from now to uh, year twenty three hundred, what does the economy look like then? Nobody knows with any, with any certainty, except they know it'll be a lot different to the way it is now. Yeah, you, know, you can't. It's so uncertain when predicting the future, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's impossible. It's impossible. But all you know is that what's happening now is technology is changing under our feet. We have a world where. Um, their demand is that we get have you know we play our part in Australia in a net zero world. Now whether we get there or not, unknown, but we play our world, and that has implications around energy use, energy generation, um, technology, and technological development around energy. Um, we're looking at a world where um, digitalization is changing things, so products are made in multiple places. At the same time, that capability is on. So what this all comes back to, James, is around how do we make ourselves as productive as possible? And you're going to hear that word more and more and more in conversations. Productivity was a dirty word for us a long time, and we have had very, you know, very poor productivity uplift in Australia for you know, 25 years. Um, the only sort of bump was through the uh, dot com boom in the late nineties, you know, where it was a bit of where it was an uplift, but since then there has been virtually flatlining productivity. If we're going to be a successful economy, we have to get that productivity uh, lifted and lifted pretty quickly. That's going to mean education. It's going to be adaption of 
technology. It's going to be uh, skills uplift, better infrastructure, better taxation system to make us more competitive and attractive. All of these things have got to come together. It's a huge task, but if we don't do it, we'll get left behind. Yeah, absolutely. One of the areas where we are being left behind, I gather, is in our uh, logistics area, particularly in our ports. I, this might this will stretch you, but I, I read that a while ago uh, you made some comments about the recent productivity report for re- report on port operations, uh, and you kind of pushed the point that it's time to get much more efficient around the ports. What's the problem there? Uh, this is a supply chain podcast, so ports are close to our hearts. Well, I was talking with a with a logistics, like a very senior logistics um, operator, not that long ago, and it, something he said really struck with me. He said ports operate in three three different. There are three different phases. So there's the you know the ship coming in. So how do you get them in in a productive way? That's part one. Part two is what happens on the dock, loading, unloading transporting along the dock and then stage three is getting out getting the getting the goods out of the port into a um you know in a productive sort of almost seamless way all three of those areas were exposed during COVID at various ports around the uh, around the world uh, long beach absolutely long beach and couldn't get ships what... in and couldn't get trucks out uh, it was just crazy yeah. yeah yeah so what's the i think it's the number Two, it might be two or three most in-demand job in Australia, as in in-demand by employers or business at the moment, is truck drivers. Now, when I tell people that, they sort of go, "What, really?" Um, but that is the fact, you know, because we are we are moving so much stuff, goods around at any one time. It's just we just don't have the capability to do it in a way that we would like to to do it as in a seamless way. As we as we could, so but all of those areas, you know, through COVID were massively disrupted and uh, and are still recovering, and that's why when I talk about productivity and infrastructure, ports is a key part of that infrastructure. So you've got things like the Moorbank Terminal in Sydney being built at the moment to mm. try to improve things, uh, for instance. Um, but that's just one example. We're probably going to have to do more and more banks all over the country, basically, to get productivity up. In the end, it's about efficiency. Productivity is another word for efficiency, basically. So, so I interrupted you. So there's, we've got to figure out a way to get the ships in and out of port faster. We've got to figure out a way in which to get the containers off faster. And then we just need the infrastructure to get the containers to that final, you know, the last mile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's when you break it down like that. It, it actually made a lot of sense to me. Uh, uh, and within ports and logistics, a lot of blame shifting and finger pointing. But if you do break it down into those components and say, "How do we get more efficient at each one?" Um, we'll be much better off for it. You put it all together, we'll get a much stronger outcome. Now, in the ports, you know, we had in the um, you know early two thousand, we've had the pitch battles over automation and the like. Um, but that you know that's the way we've got to go. Um, we've got to speed up. Um, now people will tell me that our ports are as at the port, so the middle part of that, they're reasonably efficient. Um, others tell me that we're a long way off uh, world's best practice. I think we probably 
we need to get our story straight on that front and um, and make sure that we are as efficient as possible. Um, now, when you talk about ports, there have always been a hotbed of industrial action and industrial relations disputation, but it goes their efficiency goes to the efficiency of the country. Um, we started, we talked a little while ago about how we're in Ireland and how that's a great benefit, but the fact is we're an island uh, and so we have to trade. Uh, we're a trading nation and what happens in Australia is that, you know, the vast majority of our exports go out through the ports. The vast majority of our imports come in on aircraft. That's just the way we are uh, at the moment. So we have to be as efficient as an attractive to get um, goods to come into this country. Yeah, that's, um, I think we're about the 40th most efficient, but partly that's because of lack of volume. Not lack of volume is the wrong way of saying it. The big, the big ports have got a lot more volume than we have, and so they can their efficiency looks probably a bit better than ours. Well, well that's the other point. Yeah, we're not we're not a uh, a hub like some of the other ports. So, might your Singapore's or Rotterdam? No, we're, we're an import. We're we're just down the exactly. Bottom. We're at the end of the line. Mm. Yeah, you know, we're at the end of the line. So, that's part of the problem. Is that you know um, we have. All our, you know, eighty percent or so of our goods come in via uh, come in via aircraft. So you you've got to find a way to get two way trade flows through our ports. Um, I'm not sure there's a quick and simple solution to that at the moment. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. The other big issue of this uh, this podcast is decarbonisation and the race to net zero and the post-carbon world, you mentioned it before. Many commentators are now saying that the transition to post-carbon is a massive opportunity for business. You alluded to it yourself. The Economist newspaper printed an article recently suggesting that the decarbonisation of America will also be the re-industrialisation of America. Apparently, it's a uh, President Biden quote. And this has been accelerated thanks to the recent laws such as Broad-Based Inflation Reduction Act and others. Do you think decarbonising our economy and community is an opportunity or for this small country is it a massive challenge? I think it's a massive opportunity. It's also a challenge, but I think it's a bigger opportunity than challenge. But let's not underplay the challenge in this. I think within the Australian construct, there hasn't yet been a full understanding of the impact of the, of the United States' Inflation Reduction Act. I think, you know, it's a relatively recent measure, but it's already having dramatic impact around investment flows when it comes to energy and industry more broadly. Um, because what the Americans are doing is using energy essentially as an industrial revitalization measure yeah, this in is, a huge yeah, way, this. in a way that we couldn't compete with at level. But we shouldn't get in, and it is a subsidy. And we should be very wary about getting into subsidy battles, but we need to pick our battles. Europe will respond to the Inflation Reduction Act um, in a big way. Uh, so they'll have their own version of it to attract investment. We've already seen at AI Group, we've heard from it from members around investment that would have or should have otherwise come to Australia going offshore, going to the US as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. So look, this, the decarbonisation is happening. Um, it's happening locally here, but it is now being more than ever driven from overseas. 
where the opportunity is for us here is that we are a great resource as part of that decarbonisation around rare earths and minerals and the like. Um, but it's a, going to be a challenge for us to try to keep up. We've, we've got to do better than as what has been put to me by some in government is, oh, if we just wait, we'll benefit from the technological uplift in 30 or 40 years. No, you know, the world will have moved on, you know, a long way by then. We can't sit around and wait. We have to get on with the decarbonisation agenda here ourselves. The biggest problem that we face in that at the moment is that um, we just don't have the infrastructure to allow us to do that. We don't have the poles and wires. We don't have the... Um, the capability for bat, you know, to install batteries um, or to have high, you know, obviously in America back in 2006 when the Governor Schwarzenegger, as he then was, was talking about hydrogen highways up and down California, didn't get there, but the vision was there. It was the beginning of the conversation. It changed the whole dynamic of how business started to think in that economy. Um, what I worry about, James, is that as we now sit, Australia doesn't have a coherent industry policy that will help us um, adapt to the changes that are going on globally. Uh, we, we don't have, we haven't put either the resources or the thought into it. And by resources, I mean capital. I also mean labour and I also mean headspace thinking into developing a coherent industry policy. And we need one more than ever. Once again, I fear that we're approaching things in a piecemeal way where we think that because we are resource rich, we'll be okay. Um, so the government put $2 billion into a hydrogen fund in the last budget and now say that will make us an energy superpower. No, it won't. It's helpful and it's useful, no doubt about it, but that alone will not, will not work. Out of COVID, you know, we did a lot. There was a lot of work done, and I participated in in it around trying to develop a national industry strategy, manufacturing strategy, focusing on key parts of the economy where we have strength uh, and resilience, and how do we develop those um, so that we are big global players. The progress has been pretty anemic, quite frankly. Um, so. This is a bit about vision uh, for the country in a time of change. And at the moment, it's a very cloudy vision that isn't being delivered on. So I think in some ways we have to sit down and rethink how we approach industry and industry policy in the country, taking into account the things we've been talking about today, decarbonisation, digitalisation and disruption. Um, I remember, James, back in 2011, sitting for then Prime Minister Gillard on a national manufacturer, a digital economy task force. And I said, can we take the word digital out of the task force? It's just an economy task force because every business is now becoming digital. We've got to think more broadly than we do now around how we develop and adapt our economy for the future. And I just don't get the sense we're doing it. I like what you're saying. It's a, it's a bit like saying, you know, I've got my TV's in Technicolor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's an old we all term. Moved on. We all moved on. So how do we... So, so what I'm getting at is that some of the discussions we're having 
discussions that are looking, we talked about discussions sort of looking in the rear view mirror a bit. We're not looking enough at the opportunity. Yes, of course, it's going to be challenging. You know, life is challenging because uh, you're adapting to change. But um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a hesitancy here around trying to make some big directional decisions and some coherent decisions between governments, federal and state, uh, to make sure that we are you know, all on the same page. I don't get the sense that we're all on the same page here. I, uh, I said in the last podcast, I was recently in, uh, in southern Germany, in Bavaria, and I, what, what struck me was how settled the whole climate conversion, the, the, the carbon conversion was in that area. Electric cars everywhere, electric, electric buses, it was very quiet, it was very clean, uh, recycling was obvious. Uh, to them, they're moving forward, whereas here we're still trying to figure out whether or not we agree with it or something like that. I don't know. We're still as part of being the island. We're a long way from from where it's uh, where they've moved on from that argument. I think. Yeah, we're pretty slow to catch on here. We're very fast adapters, but we're slow. Yeah, you know, once things are settled, we 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 adapt reasonably quickly. Like we're one of the biggest. Take a, take us up of mobile phones and mobile technology back in the day. Yeah, we're pretty, we're not too bad. But I always remember being in Singapore at a conference and being yeah in about two thousand and eighteen, and being struck by the fact it was an industry four conference, industry four conference, and the whole tenor of the conversation then was um, how how do we do it? How do what do we how do, how and what do yeah. we need to do? Where in Australia at that time the conversation was was around well what is it you know um, the whole the world had moved on and we were sort of laggards um, you know in the discourse around uh, around what was happening so we're just going to be faster we've got to be faster. There's a bit of the yeah. laid-back attitude yeah. of Australians where we just kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to right. that in a minute. And then as soon as we get to it, we go, oh, that's a good idea, let's adopt it. And we go, adopt really yeah. fast, but it takes, yeah, takes yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. is some good news. Yeah. I was, uh, a while ago, my friend in Seattle, Washington, um, uh, said that his son had gone to a summer camp, so a couple of years ago, probably before COVID, so his son had gone to uh, a summer camp and they'd spent the day with drones. And I said, oh, how cool would that be, just flying drones all day? And he said, no, James, they fly drones at, at five, at nine, like he is. They're, they're, um, they're uh, coding. <laughs> they're coding. Uh, now that's in, in 10 years' time, that's probably five years ago. Anyway, in five years' time, they hit the workforce. These digital natives are going to see the world a lot differently from what we do. Um, and I think that's the good news. If we're looking forward for 150 years or look forward from five after 150 years, the rate of change is going to be fast. But that's a, that's a really good point, and it is optimistic. So, but then I'll go back and I'll flip the coin: is is our education system in Australia keeping up? Are they providing the young people of who are in school today, our workforce of the future, with the skills that they need, not to just walk into a job and take over and do it on day one, but to be able to adapt um, to the changing world? So. I worry about that. I worry that we don't aren't developing the raw math skills, the raw science skills, and the inquisitiveness that we need um, in these fields around digital disruption. That that 
that we should have and in the numbers that we have. You know, we are all we are always perennially short in the number of engineers we produce. It's about twelve thousand a year. We're short in terms of engineers. So, you know, I'm not saying we we need to direct people and, and young people to these careers, but we need to encourage them. We have to we have to develop their curiosity. We have to, and there's a role here for industry in this too um, to help develop that workforce of the future. Um, and industry is turning its mind more and more to it, but it has to be in partnership with the education system at a school level and at a university level as part of our big challenge. There's a good place to stop. There's big challenges ahead. Uh, there's been big challenges for 150 years. What are you most proud about for of the, of the Australian Industry Group? James, I'm most proud of that we are... I would argue, and I think others argue on our behalf, we're a moderate, pragmatic, principled voice for business who operates across the aisle wherever possible um, to get the best outcomes for Australia as a whole, but particularly for Australian business and through business for Australia as a whole. Um, we're not... Um, you know, extremist in any way. We don't sort of stand and tub thump. Uh, we just try to get on with it. Um, I think one thing is that we have adapted and changed, you know, not just in my 11 years of being in charge, but over that 150 years, organisationally, people have been prepared to adapt and change. So I go back to the 1980s, you know, AI Group, its predecessors were a key part of the accord which has helped develop the modern economy that we're in today. That took a lot of give and take um, for business. You know, business at that time was instinctively protectionist. You're not, you know, business leadership groups were instinctively protectionist. You're not going to see that now. I think we now are trying to, through our actions, you know, be at the vanguard of, of opening Australia to and Australian business to the world be adaptive to change and being uh, um, confident about the future and knowing that we we as a country can be successful in the future. I think, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and it's continual work, but, you know, in our small way, uh, I think we play a pretty good role and I'm proud of the role we play in making the country a better place and to think ahead about the future of the country. And I think all that came through in, in our conversation today. You didn't uh, try and uh, push forward any particular barrow. You just unpacked the issues and helped us understand that there's a lot to be done and there's a lot to be thought through. Uh, and if business people listen to this are, are struggling with it, that's because the issues are complex. There, there's no easy answer. Uh, but working together um, in with an accord top approach, we'll, we'll get there, yeah. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. It's been, it's been good. No problems, James. Uh, I, um, you got some big 150 celebrations coming up. Did I see you at the National Press Conference, uh, National Press Club soon and other events? Yeah, Press Club in early August, uh, talking about you know, IR, workplace relations, that agenda and employment into the future. Then we've got our 150th anniversary um, celebration formally in mid-August, August the 14th, with the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader. That's another thing. You know, we don't push a political barrow. We talk to equally to all sides of politics, um, which I think is appreciated. Um, and then we've got some other events through the back half of this year. We've had some already this year in, in uh, 
Queensland and South Australia, uh, Newcastle, we've been there. Uh, we've got other other events to come through this year. So I'll be around the country marking the spot for the 150th. It's, a, it's, a, it's something to be proud of. It certainly is. In, a, in a, a country with only a young industrial history, to be around for that long is, uh, is a story we should tell. And thank you for, for telling it uh, today. Um, all the best with your, with your uh, celebrations. Congratulations on 11 years and congratulations to AI Group for their 150. All the best for the future. Thanks, James. It's been nice. great to you, and this is uh, it's always a delight. Well, that's it for another episode of uh, Supply Circles. Thank you to everyone for listening and, and for your feedback. If you have any feedback for today's interview with Innes Phillips or ideas for the show or just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at james.scotland, one T, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au or at my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you uh, and we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.